0: Well, good evening. Um, Originally, Pastor Tyler was going to close out this series, but he and Jenny got away for a couple of days of much-needed rest, and I'm honestly glad that they're not here. Uh, Not because I'm going to say something dumb, hopefully not because I'm going to say something dumb, but I'm glad they're not here because they are getting a few days away in Oklahoma, and uh, why don't you pray for them as they are gone, that it would be a meaningful Refreshing time for them away that they would come back recharged and uh, ready to help us uh, in their work Uh, We are in our gossip series and this is the last night of our gossip series if you've uh, If you've enjoyed this Then maybe you won't after tonight And uh, this is going to be a tough pill to swallow that's why I saved this one for last and if you haven't enjoyed this Well take comfort in the fact that this is the last one so After it after this one it's over Either way, uh, we will uh, get through it with the Lord's help. So during this series on gossip, we have been learning about fighting the temptation to share gossip and to listen to it. And that's really been the the bulk of this series. I've been encouraging you through Scripture, to, first of all, to see this as a sin, because it's one of those things that, that Jerry Bridges has called respectable sins. Sometimes there are sins we don't treat as sins, we joke about them like gluttony, like gossip. But if if God's word tells us to avoid it and tells us that it's wrong, that it's something for which Jesus died. And it's a big deal. So I've encouraged you through this series to fight the temptation both to be uh, the one sharing gossip and to be the kind of person who listens to it. But last week as we're, we begin to close down the series, we've looked at gossip from another angle. That is... Uh, What do you do when you are the subject of gossip? When you find out you're not being tempted to gossip, but you find out that other people have been gossiping about you. How do you respond when that happens? Now, of course, we've defined gossip this way, and since this is our last night, let's just read out this definition out loud together. Ready? Begin. Sinful gossip is bearing bad news, behind someone's back out of a bad heart. That's what we're fighting against, but it's also what we're dealing with because sometimes, friends, as you know, someone will bear bad news about you behind your back out of a bad heart toward you. What do you do when that happens? When you're gossiped about by people at church who Share maybe embarrassing details of your life or maybe fabricated lies about you. And now other people in your church or in your circle of friends or your connection group or people that you know think differently of you because of gossip. What do you do? What do you do when someone at work, maybe out of fear that you'll get their job or out of fear that you'll get their promotion or their pay raise, they make up things about you or exaggerate your weaknesses to other coworkers or to your boss in order to get the upper hand. What do you do when that happens? What do you do when extended family or old friends won't talk to you because they've heard something in the gossip chain and now they look at you differently? Well, first of all, we need to give attention to our relationship to God. And, and, and as it concerns our relationship to God, we respond to this happening in faith. That's what we talked about last week. We primarily do this through the act of prayer. Because prayer is the language, it's the vocabulary of dependence and trusting in God to take care of things that you and I cannot take care of. And many times when we are gossiped about, we will not be able to clean up all of the mess. Some of those messes are going to remain in our lives until Jesus comes back. So what do we do in relation to the people gossiping about us? We know that when it comes to our relationship with God, we should trust him and have faith that at the last day, he will take care of all of that. But how do we treat the people that have taken our name and misused it or drug it through the mud or destroyed our friendships, made us look bad? How do we respond to the person who's gossiped about us? Well, tonight we're going to address that. We're going to talk about responding in love. We respond to God when we're gossiped about in faith, and we respond to the perpetrators of gossip, the gossips. We respond to them in love. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, in our text this evening, we're going to begin in verse 43. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43. Our Lord says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? In, in the Sermon on the Mount, really the whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus messes with people's expectations, not only of the Messiah, but what it means to live as the people of God. And that is because when Jesus comes on the scene, when he brings his kingdom as he did when he came, there was the truth of the law... And there were a lot of additions and traditions added to the law that were misunderstandings. Now, you'll notice that part of what Jesus says is from Leviticus. You've heard it said that you should love your neighbor. Well, Leviticus 19.18 does say that, doesn't it? But, But Jesus goes on to say, you've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the love your neighbor part was something that God had told them. He had told that to his people through Moses. But the hate your enemy, that was something that religious teachers for a long time had assumed as kind of a corollary. So here's what the idea was. When God told his people on Sinai to love their neighbors, it meant they should love people from their own tribes, the people in their land, their families, their friends, those close to them, and therefore that they should hate Everyone else. Now Leviticus doesn't say hate your enemies, does it? That's what they attacked on. But but Jesus says that Leviticus, God through speaking through Moses, was not intending to say love certain people and hate everybody else. But rather when God was saying love your neighbor, he didn't put boundaries on who your neighbor could be. That for, for God speaking to his promised people, The phrase, love your neighbor, really meant, on God's part, love everyone. Now, that's a radical interpretation. But we trust how Jesus interpreted the law because he's God. So, as Christians, we believe he kind of knew what he was talking about. Now, think about the last person that you know gossiped about you, the last person that took a shot at your reputation, the last person that spread something vile about you, maybe true, maybe untrue, maybe partially true, it's hard to love that person, isn't it? It's hard. Now, there are people that are easy to love. When I, when I suggest even the phrase people easy to love, there are images of people that come into your mind as I say that. Right? You're probably all thinking of me. Well, probably not. I hope my wife is. I'm not sure. I'm not going to ask her. But when I talk about, when you talk about people easy to love, you immediately think images of people in your life that have done a lot of good things for you, that have poured a lot into you, that comes to your mind. And when I mention people hard to love, people difficult to love, other images come into your mind, don't they? And whatever image of whatever person just came into your mind as I said that, the radical way of Jesus is that you are to love that person just as much as you are to love the people that are easy to love. This isn't my idea, this is Jesus' idea. And it wasn't only radical in their culture in that day, it's radical in our own culture. Do you have that person, the person that you that you think of when I talk about people hard to love? Do you have that person in your mind's eye? Listen, Jesus is calling you to love that individual. By the way, it doesn't mean you always have to have positive thoughts about them or be happy with them. We're told to love our neighbor as ourself and We don't always have positive ideas or impressions of ourselves. Sometimes we get frustrated with ourselves, right? But it does mean to want their best and to be willing to sacrifice to make that happen. It means actively seeking that person's good, even at cost to yourself. We're not called to just love our neighbor, but Jesus... The way Jesus interprets it, it means we're called to love our enemies. And when we do this, we show our family resemblance, which is why Jesus says in verses 44 and 45, that when you're doing this, it's that you could be known as children of your father, which is in heaven. Uh, why, why would this be a family resemblance? Why would we look like God when we love our enemies? Well, who does God give blessings to? Just the good people? And that's how some of us assume it is. But if we do a little bit of thinking, we realize if God only blessed the good people, then we would be in really big trouble. If only, and this is in an agricultural era, of course, and we have kind of an agricultural area that we live in, if only the good people got sunshine, no one would have crops. If only the just people got rain, no one would get rain. But Jesus says God gives rain and sunshine what they needed to survive To the unjust people, too. And if that's God's standard for how he blesses people, if God is willing to bless his enemies, if God is willing to love his enemies, then, well, so should we. Even the tax collectors of Jesus, as Jesus goes on to say, even the tax collectors would greet other people. They would love people like them. And we could say that in our day, the terrorists and the crime bosses, they have people that they treat nicely. They have people that they say hello to in their little group doesn't make you special if you do that, but following Jesus means there's no one we're not willing to love, that there's no one we're not willing to greet and mean it, that there's no one on this globe that we're not willing to ask, how are you, and really mean it when we say it. That's what's special about Christianity. So Jesus calls us to love our enemies. You see, Christianity is not unique because we suffer at the hands of others. People in all religions and secular people suffer at the hands of others. Everyone on this earth knows what it's like to be betrayed. Christianity is not unique in in that we feel betrayal. Everyone on this earth knows what it means to be lied about, to be gossiped about. That's not a distinguishing mark of following Jesus. Christianity is unique because of how we are called to respond when we are gossiped about, when we are betrayed, when we do suffer at the hands of others. And how do we respond? Well, according to Jesus, we respond in love. respond in love. Now that's one thing to say it. It's another thing to really put it into practice. So what would it look like practically Thursday morning for us to love our enemies, for us to look at people who have used their mouth to hurt our lives? What would it look like for you and for me to love those people? Even though they're our enemies, they've set themselves up against us. Well, we're going to look at 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 four different ways we can be loving to our enemies, or four different ways we can respond in love when we have been gossiped about. And the first thing is this. It it comes to mind from our text that we just read. We respond by prayer. We pray. We love our enemies by by praying for them. Now, I think this this really connects to a couple things. Uh, We need to pray for the other, the person who's gossiped about us, our enemy, the person who's hurt us, and we also need to pray for ourselves, we need to pray for ourselves because, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more later, but we don't really have the capacity in our own strength and resources to love people in the way Jesus calls us to love people. In, in praying for ourselves, we can follow Paul's pattern in Philippians 1. I think that the full three or four verses is in, is in your handout, but uh, if you look at Philippians 1 verses 9 to 11, in that opening prayer, he, he tells his friends how he is praying for them. Um, he, he, ask, he is regularly asking God for their love to grow, but he doesn't want them to just have more love or to be more loving. He wants their love to grow in discernment, in wisdom, knowledge, and judgment. In other words, Paul is praying that the Philippians would not only love other people like Jesus tells them to love, but that they would love with a certain amount of discernment. That they would be judicious and thoughtful in their loving. See, Paul recognizes that growing as a Christian doesn't just mean we love other people. It means we grow in how we love. It takes wisdom to love well. And that's because as we're going to talk about tonight, there are different loving responses for different situations. Not all situations require the same response. But every situation can include prayer. And that begins with praying for ourselves. But of course, we also pray for the other. We pray, in this case, for our enemy. Now, I, I know that, um, you know, you may be thinking if I'm, I'm, I'm using Matthew 5 to launch this discussion about responding in love, you may think, well, David, um, when Jesus talks about the apostles loving their enemies, early Christians loving their enemies, he's talking about people that would want to put them in jail and kill them. That's a lot different than gossip, and you're right. You're right. If someone has spread gossip about you, that's nowhere near as serious as the kinds of things that the apostles listening to Jesus would encounter. But isn't that precisely the point? That despite what they would encounter and the the gruesome ways that they would go to their deaths preaching the resurrection, if they could love the people doing that to them, then surely we can love the enemies that we have on a much different scale who say mean things about us, right? Yeah, our situation is much different. That's precisely why these verses are so appropriate. Now let's be clear about what this means. When Jesus calls us to pray for our enemies, he, he means we need to talk to God on, on their behalf, we need to talk to God for them, and we need to mean it. You see, it's, it's not enough to just decide, well, I'm, there's these people that have hurt me really bad. I will start, because Jesus tells me I have to, I'm going to start mentioning these people in my prayers. God, be with this person. God, I don't like them, but bless that person. God, um, you just like say their name. That may be a challenge in itself. That's not what Jesus is talking about. If, if you look at Isaiah... Well, in Jeremiah too, actually, and even Joel. And then even in the teachings of Jesus, God is really not a fan of superficial hypocritical prayer, is he? God is not a fan of us saying things for the sake of saying them if we don't really mean them. In fact, he condemns that, and Jesus compares it to how the pagans pray. So when Jesus says pray for those who despitefully use you, Pray for those who persecute you. He doesn't just mean mentioning their name in prayer as a kind of show. Jesus doesn't like prayer that's just a show. No, he means when you talk about them to God that you are really, really interceding for them. What is it like to intercede for somebody? Well, if you've ever had uh, a close friend at the point of death and your stomach is in knots... And you get on your knees and you talk to God like you've never talked to God before because you're pleading with him to save that person. They may not be on the point of death. They may just be going through a really difficult situation. And you just pour out your heart to God. That is praying out of a heart of love. And some of you really know what that's like. Jesus is saying, in the way that you you pray for your friends that are going through a time of crisis, they're going through a need, in the way that you are praying on their behalf, that you're talking to God because you really want God to do something for them, that is what we're supposed to do with our enemies. That's what praying for them means. So let me ask you a question. If you pray, then when you pray, are the only people on your prayer list people that you happen to like? If you pray, then are the people that you pray for all of your friends? I'm not saying stop praying for them. What I am saying is this. Christ is calling you to have a longer prayer list. People in all kinds of religions pray for their friends and hope that deities of some kind or another will answer their prayers. Christians pray for people that hate them. Jesus himself modeled this, didn't he? As he's on the cross, he expends energy on intercessory prayer, doesn't he? Father, forgive them. Uh, now, Now, these people are taking the Son of God in the flesh, who is absolutely innocent of all the crimes he's been charged with, and they're making him die a terrible, agonizing death, and Jesus who is a little bit low on energy, expends the energy to have intercessory prayer for them, he asks the Father to forgive them if possible because they don't know what they're doing. Now, don't you think that's a pretty charitable interpretation of their actions? Well, they don't fully know what they're doing. Could you get much more charitable than that when people are crucifying you and you're God in the flesh? If Jesus prayed for them, then how can I say there's people that I won't pray for? We love people, even the the people that gossip about us, and one of the ways we do that is by praying for them. Now, there's another loving way that we respond to gossip, and that is this. Number two, sometimes we just need to overlook. Overlook. Often we can be loving to those who gossip about us by simply overlooking what they have done. Proverbs 19.11 says this. The discretion of a man deferreth his anger. And it is his glory to pass over a transgression. Now, uh, the, the whole idea of the book of Proverbs is kind of setting out a course for the people of God to follow if they want to be wise. And you have all kinds of contrast between the wise man and the foolish man and also the simple and the scorner, which are variations on the fool. How does the wise man respond to conflict? Well, one of the things that the wise man sometimes will do will just pass over a transgression. Just overlook it. Much of the time, perhaps most of the time, if we're honest, most of the time, we can love our gossiping enemies by simply overlooking what they've said. I think, and, and this is not some sort of exact number that I get from scripture, but I think more than 80% of the time, when I hear people talking about the ways they've been gossiped about, most of the time, I'm not saying every time, but most of the time, the best thing to do is just get over it and move on. I realize there are exceptions. We'll get to that in a moment. But often, uh, if we're going to be the wise man of Proverbs, we just overlook it. Now, whether we should or not overlook depends on these factors. Number one, what kind of gossip is it? There are different kinds of gossip. Number two, is the story true or false? You know, sometimes people are gossiping about you because you were too transparent with someone. You were just unwise in what you shared, and they're sharing that with other people. But really, you shouldn't have shared that in the first place. Sometimes that's the problem. And if you are the source of the, of the gossip, you should probably just overlook it because you kind of started it. Now, it's not like that all the time, but it is like that sometimes. Number three, is this a secret you asked someone to keep, but they shared it anyway? Number four, how serious is the information? Now Sometimes you're being gossiped about and maybe the information being shared could really hurt people and it could really hurt other people if it's not contained and it's not addressed and confronted. And so sometimes you will need to confront. We'll talk about that in a moment. But oftentimes, because the information isn't that serious, it's best for us to just move on and overlook what that person has done to us. A great deal of gossip is just people sharing their bad opinions about us. And oftentimes, by the way, those bad opinions may be true. Now, it's possible that uh, you're frustrated because someone has spread around the rumor that you can be a jerk to people. Now, that could be because you are a committed Christian who stands up for truth, and people in the workplace have this negative image of you because you are so uh, you're so good at following Jesus. And there are times when this happens. We're going to talk about that with persecution. Uh, but it's possible if a lot of people at work think you're a jerk, it is possible you're actually well, just a little bit of a jerk, right? That's always the possibility. Maybe the rumor floating around about my personality that everyone seems to resonate with and agree on, maybe they've got something to it. <laughs> maybe they're right. And maybe this is an area in which I need to grow. Now, a lot of this times the gossip shared about us is totally wrong. But sometimes... There's a little bit of truth in it, and that can actually be useful in, as, we, as we see our own sin and learn to grow in it. Sometimes gossip should lead to confession, even though that's not all the time. Now, overlooking, of course, doesn't minimize our pain. I'm not saying by, by overlooking that everything sh- will be easy to get over. Sometimes things shared about us are very, very painful, and they're far-reaching in, in their effects. But overlooking an offense is one way to deal with it. Sometimes in love, you're loving the other person by not making a big deal about something that really shouldn't be a big deal. Overlooking saves us a lot of time and trouble in our relationships because the the truth is, if you want to keep relationships, there is a limit to how much you can confront. Now, that's number three. Sometimes... You know, we cannot always overlook an offense. Sometimes we really do need to confront the person who gossiped about us. That is the third way that we deal with this. Now, you you may be thinking, well, confronting isn't loving. But confronting can be loving. God, after all, confronts us in our sin. Now, just think about it this way. Um, Let's imagine Jesus comes on the scene to bring salvation, but John the Baptist does not prepare the way before him. He doesn't preach repentance. He doesn't get people's attention that being biologically related to Abraham doesn't make them God's people in a saving sense. That they have to repent and believe in the Messiah. Imagine if there is no John the Baptist. Now there would have been multitudes of people who would have never felt their need. They wouldn't have went out to see Jesus because they didn't realize they needed to repent. But Jesus comes on the scene teaching, and crowds gather. And one of the reasons that is, is because God confronted his people through John the Baptist. God confronts us. And when God confronts us, it is incredibly loving, because otherwise we wouldn't know our own sin. If there was no conviction, none of us would ever get to heaven. Because we would never recognize our need to trust in Christ to save us. No, confronting can be very... Very loving, and often love may call us to confront. Matthew 18 gives this in, in the context of a, of church relationships. Jesus says, "Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother." Sometimes, by the way, the only way to reconciliation begins with confrontation. We all want the fruit of reconciliation, but some of us don't want to do the hard work of confrontation. And there are relationships you won't get back unless you confront things. So Jesus says sometimes, when there is a trespass, you have to confront. Now, by the way, notice notice what Jesus says here in Matthew 18. You start by keeping it between you and the person. This is another reminder that we don't fight gossip with more gossip. When you find out, friend, that someone has gossiped about you, Here's what you should never do. Start telling everyone that they've gossiped about you. Don't you see how that just makes it much worse? They've sinned against me this way. They've said things behind my back out of a bad, uh, malicious heart to try to get me. I'm going to do the same thing to them. Now, do you really think that's going to help? Jesus makes it clear that when you've been offended in any way, in any meaningful way, there's been some sort of trespass, keep it between you and the person that's done it to you first. That is like the first level of conflict resolution. We don't fight gossip with more gossip. So when there is a significant gossiping offense, when something is to the point that overlooking is not an option, we confront Now again, I want to say that most of the time with the little gossip that we deal with here and there in our normal everyday lives, most of the time we won't need to do this. We can just overlook. Why do I say that? Well, think about the context of Matthew 18. This is the process by which if someone is unrepentant, if the sin is unresolved, the church eventually dismisses the person, right? So, uh, if the gossip that's been perpetrated about you is something like, I don't like working with this person in the nursery because they're impatient with the kids. Okay, you don't really need to confront someone about that, right? Because Matthew 18 would say that if they're unrepentant of it, eventually they get dismissed from the church. Should the church really kick somebody out for saying that you're impatient in the nursery? Well, of course not. So if there's something that's so little, that it's unthinkable to take it to steps two or three, it's probably not big enough to take with step number one. Jesus is talking about serious offenses here. And one of the ways that we can deal with gossip is by not being so easily offended about everything. We, if we're going to have a family, if we're going to have a good workplace, if we're going to get along with people in the church, we have to realize, we have to realize... That everyone around you, everyone sitting on these chairs right now is right in the middle of their sanctification, and they're going to say dumb things sometimes. And so are you. And so am I. So, a lot of stuff we just need to overlook. But when it is to the point we need to confront, when it is something serious, then we confront it with the person, himself or herself, and we don't gossip about them. Questions before you confront is this true? Is this true? What can I learn from this? Again, sometimes the criticism that you hear about behind your back could reflect things that are in your heart, especially if there's a pattern, right? There's a pattern. If, if the gossip about you is, well, he or she never ever listens to anyone and everyone agrees with that, you may have a listening problem that, that God has used this sin to, to bring out and address. Number four, here's an important question. Or number three, should I defend myself? Should I defend myself? There's a great proverb, a set of Proverbs uh, that, that, that go like this. Uh, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou be like unto him. But answer a fool according to his folly. Why? Lest he be wise in his own conceit. Here's what Solomon is saying. Sometimes, sometimes you need to talk back to the fool and argue with him and say no. So, and, and so with gossip, sometimes it's a big enough thing you need to defend yourself. But other times, if it's smaller then arguing with the fool, arguing with with someone who has done you wrong by gossiping about you, you're just kind of getting down onto their level. So should I answer or should I not answer the fool in this case? Should I defend myself or not defend myself? Well, it depends on how big of a deal it is. And if it's a bigger deal, then yes, you should. Number four, can I rejoice in this? What do you mean, David? Why would I ever rejoice in gossip? Well, it's possible that in some situations, that you're being gossiped about because you're being persecuted. Now, I don't think this is all the, this is happening all the time in all of our situations, but I think it is going to happen sometimes. Listen, it's, it's possible that people that are not Christians that know you have negative opinions about you because of the fact that you follow Jesus. Maybe you got into a situation where you were cornered and you had to talk about transgenderism. And they don't like what you said, even though you said it graciously and lovingly, but you follow Jesus, so you have a different opinion than lost people on it, I hope. Now, they may say very mean things behind your back, but in that, you would be able to rejoice because you are identifying with Jesus. And Jesus says, when people say mean things about you because you follow me, rejoice, for you have a reward in heaven. So there is gossip that sometimes happens because we're being faithful to Scripture, and in that case, if we're doing it with the right spirit and the right attitude and with the same demeanor that Jesus had, then it can be a cause for rejoicing. People are mad at me because they're really upset about Jesus and they, and I remind them of Jesus. That can happen. Sometimes we love by confronting. Now here's number four. Now we should always pray. And sometimes we overlook and sometimes we confront. But we should always pray. Number four, this is something we should also always do. Repay evil with good. Repay evil with good. We love our enemies, even our enemies that gossip about us, by repaying evil with good. 1 Peter 3. In 1 Peter 3, Peter writes to some struggling Christians who have had some terrible things done to them and are going to, they're about to have a lot worse things done to them soon. He writes this, that in following Jesus, here's how they should behave. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing. You get what he's saying? When you're treated with evil, you give out blessing. When you're treated with railing, people speak unkindly about you, you give out blessing. It's like a very odd machine. It doesn't matter what you put into it. Blessing comes out. Peter is saying that's what a Christian should be like. No, he goes on. He explains this. Why? Knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. In other words, God is blessing you eternally, infinitely. And he talks about, by the way, in 1 Peter, their inheritance that's stored up for them in heaven. And because we are so blessed by God and so loved by God, we then have the resources to bless and love other people even if they didn't give us blessing and love. That that to be a Christian means you have so much undeserved blessing from your creator that even if people come and in their transactional relationship with you, they give you evil, then they get back Blessing. They give you railing. They get back blessing. They gossip about you. And they get back blessing. You See, when people gossip about you, your basic stance towards them needs to be for them. Like I said, when it comes to love, if we're to love our enemies in the same way that we love ourselves, that doesn't mean we're always going to be happy about them or like everything they do. We don't like everything we do. But it does mean we need to be for them. That like we want our best, we want their best. By the way, it also doesn't mean you'll have the same exact level of trust that you may have had before. You may not be able to trust them as much. But it should mean you want the best for them and you'll do good for them when you can. Paul writes something really similar to the Romans in Romans chapter 12. He says, Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul not only implies that we should do good to our enemies, but that we should be aware of opportunities. We should be on the lookout for how we can bless them. In other words, uh, people that are giving you evil, you need to know whether or not they're hungry and thirsty. In, In other words, like your life should be tuned in to their needs. So you have an opportunity to do it. See, the Bible doesn't promise that Christians won't be hurt. To the contrary, being a Christian means you're, you will be hurt, but you are called to do good to the people that hurt you. Doesn't, by the way, it doesn't mean we become neutral toward them or just don't get back at them. It means we look intentionally for ways to bless them. We scheme to do good to them and meet their needs and help them. Paul says if we do this, it can lead to our enemies having coals of fire on their head. Now, when I was a kid, I thought, and I read through, this, also, this is from Proverbs, um, I thought it meant, if you're really nice to people, you can kill them, with, kill them with kindness, and you'll burn their face off. That's not what it means. Now, Some of you think it's what it means. It's not what it means. Now, there's an ancient custom where, you know, they didn't have social media back then, and sometimes people would have to make retractions because people were sinners in the ancient world too. And this ancient custom led to a common saying that became kind of a metaphor. Now you've heard um, eating your own foot or having egg on your face. Those are not typically literal, right? They're metaphorical. Well, this ancient custom led to a metaphor too. And here was the custom. Imagine you said something bad about somebody else. You had a negative comment toward them. You've been speaking negatively about them and you realize that you're wrong. Like someone brings to your attention, your story is completely off, you've been sharing this bad information, and now you've realized the error of your way. Well, then this person, you would uh, go down to a, uh, like the center of the village or the town, and you would have like uh, a pot or a pan full of hot coals, and you would hold it on top of your head. I know it's weird, but here was the idea. The, the image meant this, and this is why it stuck around as a phrase an idiom the idea was i've had wrong thoughts i've had evil thoughts and now they've been purged from my mind i was wrong and i've seen the error of my way so here's what paul is saying paul is saying sometimes when we when people hurt us and instead of repaying them evil we repay them with good that will give them an opportunity to change their mind that being good to your enemies may be the best chance they have at reevaluating their thinking. Now, you remember when Paul was converted on the road to Damascus. And you probably also remember one of the most significant scenes in his life that takes place directly before it. Stephen has been lied about, he's been called a blasphemer. They're going to put him to death. Saul signs off on his death, and while Stephen's body is being crushed, while he's being publicly executed, he says, Lord, don't lay this sin to their charge. What happens? Well, pretty soon after that, Paul has an encounter with Jesus, and you know what he does? Hot coals go on the head. He changed his mind. He saw Stephen treat him unexplainably. With love, And that was one of the things, perhaps, that led to his change of mind. Paul is saying when you repay evil with good, that may be the best chance that person has at changing their thinking. And if people gossip about you and their idea of you is that you're a, a bad, evil, vindictive person and you do good to them, there is a chance that some of them will change their mind, isn't there? well, this is really heavy stuff, so how, how is all of this possible? It all sort of seems like a pipe dream, doesn't it? Is this really how Jesus is calling us to treat other people? This seems impossible. John chapter 15 and verse five. Jesus says this. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do, say that last word out loud, nothing. You see, the whole nature of the Christian life is really a life of dependence. Growing as a Christian, being a Christian doesn't mean you make yourself a better person who then does better things. No, no, that's not where our fruit comes from. Uh, Augustine says about this verse, Memorably, whoever imagines that he is bearing fruit in himself is not in the vine. And whoever is not in the vine is not in Christ. And whoever is not in Christ is not a Christian. See, at the very center of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is that we live this life of dependence, where Jesus calls us to do things that we cannot do, so we must rely on him to do them through us. We can't love those in our own power that gossip about us. It feels impossible in our own strength because it is impossible in our own strength. It sounds crazy because without Jesus, it would be. But Jesus loves them. And as Romans 5 says, God's love has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit so that Jesus can love people through us. See, to be a Christian doesn't mean that you and yourself are some sort of source of spiritual power called to do difficult things. Friends, it means you are a conduit of God's spiritual power called to do impossible things. Have you been gossiped about? When I ask you about people that are hard to love, did anyone come to mind? Respond in love. Because you're connected the vine. You can't respond in love as a branch on your own, but the vine loves them, and he calls you to love them as well. Let's all stand.